turn uh, to the book of Amos. We are using our time as a church this summer uh, to look at this uh, Old Testament uh, prophet who brought the words of God to the people of uh, God almost 800 years before the coming uh, of Jesus Christ. And though it is an ancient book, it is a book that uh, was given to a particular audience in his day, and yet it is one that we can glean incredible truths with regards to our own walk with God and our own walk with Jesus Christ in the 21st century. It was an unpopular message, and yet it's an uncompromising one because it calls the people of God uh, out for their lack of faithfulness to God and His Word, and as a result, God warns His people, excuse me, warns His people with a series of oracles that were used to bring the fear of God back into the people before it was too late. And there's great truths that we can uh, glean this week and in these days to come that it is altogether important for us, though we are saved by the grace and mercy of God, that both in the Old Testament and New Testament alike, there are warnings for us not to grow comfortable or lackadaisical in our walk with God because God is a disciplining God. He is a God who desires uh, more of our character than he cares as much with our comfort. And some of us are altogether too comfortable and our character lacks the Christ-likeness that God has called us to. And so these are reminders to us, examples to us, that we are called to live godly and holy lives. And when we don't, we should be altogether ready and prepared for God to do his disciplining in our lives. And we're going to learn that at times that discipline can be difficult for us to bear and it can be quite painful in the process. And so once again, we're going to pick up Amos in the chapter three of his book. Uh, Another message has come from God that now uh, is given as the uh, middleman Amos is to share it with the people of God, and it is another difficult one for them to hear, and yet it comes with some of the reasons why God is so upset with his people. And so this morning, we're going to look at Amos chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, which is the entirety of the chapter. I've got two points I want to address with you this morning, and then we're going to look at a couple takeaway points with the time we have. So turn, if you haven't, to page 765 in your pew Bible, or you can find it in your your own Bible there as you follow along. Let me read for us. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. This is what God says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together? Unless they have agreed to meet, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city? unless the Lord has done it. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? 
Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and, and say, assemble yourselves in the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring you down, your defense, bring down your defenses from you, and your stronghold shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on that day I punish Israel for his transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you once again, and before us again, Lord, in this book of Amos, we come to a difficult passage, a passage that is really, really difficult for those that it was first written to, and yet it has huge implications in our own lives, reminders and examples that we serve a God who is not to be played with. We serve a God who is serious about your holiness. And because of that, Lord, we too must be serious about our holiness. And yet, Lord, we recognize this morning that one of the reasons why you become so angry with your people is because of all the blessings that you've shown us, all the grace, all the mercy, all the provision. And what do we go and do? We trample those provisions and those graces underfoot, and we go about serving ourselves instead of you. Teach us from this example of these people and use it as a warning to us so that we might not fall into the same predicament as they did under the hand of discipline. And Lord, I pray that as a result, we might know what it means to do right so that we may honor you in all that we say and do. We love you and give you the praise for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, I remember the words as if they were happening right now. They echo in the very soul of who I am. How could you, Mr. Badal? How could you? The words were words that meant that there was disapproval, that there was astonishment. Now, the people that were looking at me in the room, there was a whole group of them when those words were uttered to me. I was about 19 years of age, standing before a group of people that I had not ever met before, and yet I knew I was in real trouble. How could you, Mr. Bedall? The disappointment and disapproval, the long and angry and even, long and even angry faces that stared at me. They were burning holes deep down into my soul. You see, I was in college at the time. I was given the great privilege, believe it or not, to serve as the college's student body president. I remember my parents were so excited. My mom wrote in the Christmas letter that year, Tim's finally pulled it together. <laughs> he has been viewed as a leader amongst his peers. She was so excited. You see, as student body president, I was to serve as a model student. 
I was to be an example to my classmates. I was to make sure that I was to be an example and a model for the school as a whole, to be a representative to a watching world. That is until I got a certified letter in the mail telling me to arrive to a board of directors meeting. It hadn't dawned on me when I got to the meeting why I was there. I told my mom, who had gotten the letter uh, and had signed off on it, that the board of directors from time to time seeks the uh, wisdom of the student body president, of which she said, I want to come. I want to see how my young son is helping advise and, and lead the direction of a school of higher education. She was excited, but we would both be incredibly shocked and chagrined, if I remember her own words, when the president of the school asked me to stand and started with the phrase, Mr. Badal, how could you? Then it dawned on me some months before that I had been involved within a campus infraction we won't go into details because it's under the blood of Jesus Christ. <laughs> but I had been detained and arrested by campus police. And the board of directors had found out about it. For the next 15 minutes, the board of directors following the president of the school would begin to share their utter frustration that the student body president, the leader of the student body, would engage in activity unbecoming of any students. Mr. Bidal, how could you? You've been given a great opportunity. You've been given a great responsibility. How could you allow yourself to fall into such trouble when you were given the job of leading the students in a totally different direction? How could you? You should have known better. Well, why do I tell you that story? Two important lessons. Number one, your pastor as a young man was an idiotic fool who squandered great opportunities. I don't know what the second Christmas letter said, uh, but I'm sure it didn't talk about my tenure as the student body president. But more importantly, that story of my own squandering of great opportunities is exactly what God is saying to his people. Israel, how could you? All the opportunities I've given you, all of the responsibility that you had amongst all the people groups of the world. You were to be a model. You were to be an example. You were to be the one that people looked up to. And you took that opportunity and you squandered it. Israel, how could you? Could God be saying the very same things to us today? While we don't live in the same place as the Israelites did in the 8th century before Christ, and maybe we're not guilty of all the sins that they are, could God be saying of us individually today, how could you? In light of all that I've done for you, with even far greater disappointment and disapproval of a college board of directors, how much greater is it to hear those words from Almighty God? Well, you see, the reason why God's able to say it is because of two very important truths that I want to illustrate this morning. Number one, the opportunity that we've received. 
the opportunity that we've received. Let's jump into verse 1 right away. And it tells us that the Lord is speaking. This isn't Amos talking. This is God speaking. And notice he says, I've got a word against you, Israel. Probably better translated, if you'd like to write this down, probably better translated than the word against is the word about. This is what God says about you, Israel. And he's going to share some of the things about them. Yes, some are are words that are against Israel, but not all are. So translators think that about probably works better than against. And I wonder if the people of Israel were like, all right, God's going to say some things about us. You know, we want to hear what God has to say as a, as a staff here at the church. Every year we do reviews. And one of the things that we do with regards to our reviews is we uh, get individuals who work with the different staff members around them to speak about them and their performance and how the working relationship is like and all of that. And when it's time to do the reviews, we get to hear some of those things. They're always um, confidential and uh, uh, anonymous. But we get to hear about what people say about us. And there's times where you're like, you know, it's all going to be good, right? I'm a good pastor. I'm a good, a good worker. Everybody loves working with Pastor Tim, right? And, and, and you're excited about it until you hear, well, wait a minute. Pastor Tim doesn't do this so well, or, or this staff member doesn't do that so well, or maybe in your own reviews that you've had at work where, where you've been all excited, thinking it's going to be all positive, and then some negatives come. Well, this is what God says. I'm going to tell you about yourselves. There's nothing good about you right now that I see. You're going to fail the review. And amidst that, this overwhelming theme keeps coming in again and again and again. How could you do that? How could you live that way? How could you respond that way? How could you take all that I've given and go your own way? Now notice this review involves the whole family, it says, in verse 3, the whole family of God, the people of Israel. Now that's a reference in two things. Number one, to the collective two kingdoms of Judah and Israel. And so though they're divided in their nationalities, if you will, God is bringing his judgment towards both of them. And second, it's a collective assessment. This isn't, well, you know what, Junior over here in Bethel, he's been bad and God's speaking against him. And so God's having a word with him. He's not having a word with me. This is a collective assessment that God is angry with the whole lot of them. Nobody can say, well, he's not talking to me. And so in a collective way, he's asking, how could you? Now in verses 1 through 1 and 2, he gives us the reason why he's so astonished. He gives us the reason why he's so disappointed in the people of Israel. God has done some things for Israel that should have then allowed an outcome to be far different. Let's look at them. Number one, he delivered them from slavery. It tells us in the text... He says, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. For 400 years, the people of God, we know this. If you've watched the movie, The Ten Commandments, or if you've read the book of Exodus, you know 
that years after Joseph was prime minister of Egypt, the Pharaoh died and a new Pharaoh came to power and he was uh, altogether against God and against God's people and he took them into slavery and for 400 years... They were oppressed. They were in chains and in bondage to masters that ordered them around with no regard for their welfare. Each and every day, the people of God would cry out and murmur for God to intervene. God, help us. God, rescue us. God, we're dying here. Will you come to our aid? When God was speaking to Moses in Exodus 2.23... This is what God says. The Israelites groaned and cried out under their burden of slavery and their cry for deliverance from bondage ascended to me, said God. In Deuteronomy 26, 7. So we called out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, our toil, and our oppression. And during this time of great anguish, what does God do? Exodus 3, 8 through 10 says... I will come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen how severely the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, go. I'm sending you Moses to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So here they've got a problem, they're in slavery, and God says, I hear you, and I'm going to take you out of the slavery, and I'm going to not only get you out of slavery, but I'm going to put you in a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of awesome vegetation and opportunity. God did that for them. And as we read the Old Testament, all of that became true. Number two, what did God do? God designated them... As a family, go on from verse 1, and it says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. That word know is an important word. It isn't that God just knows you by name or, or knows some things about you. That word know in the Hebrew is a very intimate word. In fact, the first use of that word is found in the Garden of Eden. When it says that Adam knew his wife Eve, and they begat a son as a result. It speaks of intimacy, closeness, uh, an intimate knowledge and relationship. And what God says of the people of Israel is, I have an intimate relationship with you. I know you. I love you. I'm engaged with you. And we've seen that throughout the Old Testament, that God, above all other families, above all other nationalities, above all other countries and and people groups, God has had a relationship with the Israelites unlike anyone else. He chose them, not because they were the most prestigious or the largest of groups or the most powerful of groups. He picked them out of his grace and mercy. He called their father to be uh, the father uh, of the nation of Israel to be Abraham. And God called and related to their father and the patriarchs that would come along the way. And God would give them at all times and in all ways everything they needed. He would give them priests and patriarchs and prophets 
and kings. He would provide for them. We are reminded in the wilderness that he gave them shoes to wear that never would go bad. He would give them ravens and, and, and manna from heaven. He would give them water from a rock. He would protect them with pillars of smoke and pillars of fire. He would allow the walls of Jericho to come tumbling down. He would empower a young man named David to destroy the great giant Goliath. God was with the people of God over and over and over again. And God says through Amos, look at all that I've done. Be reminded of how I've ministered to you, how I've cared for you, how I've blessed you each and every day. There hasn't been a moment where I've not taken care of you, where I've not loved you. And how do you repay me? How do you respond to me? You murmur. As soon as they leave Egypt, they begin to murmur and groan. Moses, you brought us out here to die. Send us back to Egypt. At least we had food and water and we had the necessities of life. They had forgotten their slavery. It wouldn't be too long before the God who had driven them out of Egypt would be giving them laws and commands to Moses himself on Mount Sinai. While God is speaking to Moses on their behalf, they are constructing an idol, a calf of gold. How could you, Israel? God was their king, and it wasn't good enough. We want to have kings like everyone else, so give us a man king instead of the God king we've got. And God would give them over to their sin again and again. God was never good enough for the people of Israel. And so God says as a result, I'm going to notice in verse 3, I'm going to punish you. Now we need to be careful and recognize God is not some evil, angry, vindictive God. He is a God who is jealous for his relationship with his people. And his people have altogether thrown all of the grace, all of the mercy, all of the goodness out the door. And God says, as the school board president of the college said to me, how could you? In light of all that you've had and all the opportunity... Now here's the thing of the punishment that God gives. His punishment isn't to destroy. Because God still calls Israel his people. God didn't go look for a new people group, a new covenant relationship with others. He didn't uh, get rid of us and find a new spouse. No. In fact, even we as the church have been grafted in, the book of Romans tells us, we have been grafted in, to the people of God, the people of Israel, and yet God still has promises in the future for the nation of Israel and for the people of Israel. And so this punishment you need to recognize this morning because they were delivered from slavery, because they were designated as a family, that God's punishment always disciplines us to maturity. It disciplines us to maturity. Like a good earthly father... God is modeling to us that when you love someone, you discipline them so that they might do what is right and good. Now, they had squandered it. They had trampled upon it. And yet, what does God do? God's mercies are new each and every morning. Great is the faithfulness of God. 
Now, all of this, yes, was written to a group of people, Israelites. We don't live there. It was written to a group of Israelites eight centuries before Christ. We don't live it during that time. We're not Israelites. We're the church. So what implications do we have? The implication we have is while the punishments may be for these individuals particularly or specifically, we need to ask the question, can that be said of us today? We who have been delivered from slavery, not the slavery of Egyptians, but the slavery of sin. Paul tells us that we are enslaved to our own worldly appetites, that we are enslaved by the devil himself through his lies. And it was Jesus who came and delivered us from the bondage of the devil, delivered us from death into life. We have been delivered from the slavery of sin. As children of God now, we no longer are children under the wrath of God, but we've been adopted into the family of God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Like Israel, we have so much that God has given us. And the question is this morning, when someone has received much, much will be required of them, Jesus says, what are we doing with it? And could God say, in light of all that I've done for you, Christian, in light of all that I've done, I've saved you, I've given you all that you need for life and godliness, I put air in your lungs, I allow your brain to function as it needs to, I've given you all that you need, all the spiritual blessings under heaven, I've given you all that, and this last week, here's the question, how did you repay me? How did you show your love and affection to me? Did you squander it? Did you trample upon it? Could God be saying this morning of you, Christ follower, how could you? In light of the cross, the blood that was shed, the sorrow that was brought upon the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, you went and did that? You thought those things? You engaged in that behavior? How could you? You see, we we imagine God to be this celestial Santa Claus. He's just happy to see you. He says he knows if you've been naughty or nice, but let's be honest. Has Santa Claus ever said to you, you're not going to get what you want? I don't think Santa's ever told anybody they're naughty. It's bad advertising, because I was plenty naughty when I was a kid, and I got everything I ever wanted. Santa always brought it, and there's this feeling, well, God will inevitably, because God is love, no matter what we do to God, he's going to love us. You see, we start visualizing that God is like my little dog, Wrigley. Listen, at times, I treat our little dog, Wrigley, I love our dog, Wrigley, I really like him a lot. But I'm not a very good friend. I get up and leave for days on end. I don't tell him. But Wrigley, I'm going to take off here. I just load up the bags and and he sees it. And I wonder if what's all the activity. They're putting stuff into the car. And then we're gone and we put them. We drop them off at my parents' house or somewhere. We don't say, hey, buddy, you know, we'll be back. So the dog's like, is they going to come back? And we were gone this last week just for a, a day or so. And as soon as I come into the house, Wrigley's just so excited to see me. Man, I love you, Tim. You're the greatest. Well, I just abandoned you for like 
48 hours. You're not mad about that? You see, we make God out to be this little dog that when we come and go do our thing, God's just happy to see you when you show back up. Let me tell you something. James Montgomery Boyce, who wrote a commentary that I've been using for my study, says the following. God is no patsy. He is not a weak-livered, pathetic figure wringing his hands on the ramparts of heaven as he witnesses our sin, wondering what he's going to do. He is the lion God. He is the God who marches at the head of alien armies to judge his unholy people. We need to recognize this morning that when God says, how could you, he doesn't sit there and say, how could you do this? He says, I'm holy. And I have been faithful in taking care of all that you need. And you have gone and you've done the exact opposite. Instead of following me and pursuing me and worshiping me, you've raised up other things. What things, what have those things done for you that I haven't? Your pursuits, your desires, your dreams, your possessions, your money. God sits there and he's angry and he says to you, Tim, what has your money done for you that I haven't done? Has your money died for you? I have. Has your house provided for you? No, but I have. Can your car be the great physician? No, but I am. But all the while, I put my trust and my hope and my desires in those things, those created things, instead of the creator God who Paul says should be forever praised. And God says to his people, eight centuries before Christ and 21st centuries after Christ, how could you? You with so many opportunities... And so what happens? God doesn't quit on us. Amidst our unfaithfulness, God is perpetually faithful. But he is faithful to right the ship and to get us to the place we need to be. And that is because there's an accountability that God requires. There's an accountability that God requires. Write that down. In verses 3 through 6, here's the accountability. Starting in verse 3. There's these series of questions, and we read it, and you're like, well, what what is he getting at? Well, each of these questions, in verse 3, in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 6, there's a series of questions, all of them responding with the answer, yes. Uh, Years ago in a Looney Tunes show, uh, Bugs Bunny does this with uh, one of his uh, guys, I think it's Yosemite Sam. And Bugs Bunny starts rattling off these questions, boom, 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 and it's yes, 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 and then he knows the question he has to ask Yosemite Sam, Yosemite Sam would say no to, but because he's got him saying yes on all of them, by the time he gets to the zinger, Yosemite Sam says yes, and Bugs Bunny says, I got you, and that's what God's doing through Amos, start answering these questions. Can two walk together if they haven't met together? First, yes, they have to. And he goes through, does a lion roar when he has no prey? Yes. Does a young lion cry from his den when he's taken nothing? Yes. And yes, yes, yes. Does When the trumpet sounds in verse 6, in a city, are not people afraid? It's the tornado siren that goes off. Aren't people concerned? Don't they start looking to the sky knowing trouble is coming? The answer is yes. And then here comes the zinger. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Well, yes. Wait a minute. 
What Amos is saying is, is disaster is going to come upon this city. And I don't want, Amos says, I don't want you to think that it's coincidence. I don't want you to think it's happenstance. I don't want you to think it's just bad things happening to good people. When that day comes, I want you to remember this day that it was God who brought disaster to this city. Now, right away, we need to be careful how we interpret things. Because while that was true in Amos, is that true in our lives when disaster hits? And we've had disasters, lots of disasters, not only in our country, but in our world. Where not just hundreds, but thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people have lost their lives. Is it because God is judging? We'll always, no matter what happens, you'll get some preacher who will say that it is because of some group of sinners sinning a particular sin that a group now this has brought on this disaster. There's not, it's not completely true. Because sometimes God allows things to happen to happen. Rain falls on the godly and ungodly alike. Sun shines on the godly and ungodly alike. But there are times, see, we're the opposite. We don't think that God ever judges a city. That God ever judges a people. But we need to recognize and know that God does bring judgment. But that does not mean every tornado, hurricane, tsunami, earthquake is as a result of God's judgment. Because God is merciful, God is kind, but we need to recognize as well that God is warning us. God is warning us. When disaster strikes, we need to stop and ask the question, what are we not doing right? Are there offensive ways in us? Could this have been averted had we shown the love and the following of God that we were called to? Well, why would God allow disaster to come? He gives two indictments. Number one, because they're comfortable. They're comfortable. Notice in the text, and it just continues to go through, starting in verse 9, proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod. Then he says, the strongholds in the land of Egypt. As you go on, notice he says, we'll bring down your defenses. He says, the strongholds again in verse 11 will be plundered. And then notice he goes down and he starts talking about houses. Verse 15, I'll strike the winter house and the summer house. And then he goes on and he says, the houses of ivory shall perish. And then at the end of verse 15, he says, the great houses. That word stronghold and those references to houses are mansions that the Israelite people have built in recent days. Amos is calling out because of the economic uh, windfall that the people of Israel had had. They had built for themselves these mansions, these strongholds, these places where people could feel safe and comfortable. And as a result of that, the people of God had stopped looking to God for their protection and their sustenance. They started looking at their possessions. Your house was the definition of riches. And so they had built these great dwelling places and began to think their lives were untouchable. They were comfortable. Notice also they were corrupted. God says you're a corrupt group of people. Notice what he says. He says that he is going to bring great tumult in verse 9 to Israel. Why? 
because they've oppressed others in her midst, end of verse 9. Verse 10, they don't know how to do right. They store up violence and robbery in their homes. And so they're a corrupt group of people. They're not doing it. God says, you don't even know how to do right. Even if you tried, you're so corrupt that you can't even figure out what righteousness and obedience looks like. And so what is God going to do? God says, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to punish you. I'm going to discipline you. And this discipline isn't going to be pleasant. Hebrews chapter 12 says, no discipline is pleasant at the time. So notice a couple things about this discipline that God's going to bring. It's very painful. It's very painful. Notice how he uses, the the words he uses. He says he's going to upend. He's going to bring great tumult. He is going to bring adversaries who are going to bring down your defenses where you will be plundered. But then he gets into graphic terms in verse 12. As the shepherd rescues the mouth of the lion, two legs or a piece of an ear. What it means is, is by the time my discipline is done, the others will come and there will only be parts of you left. This is graphic. He says it's going to tear you from limb to limb. And sometimes the hand of God can be that heavy. Let that sink into each and every one of us. When God speaks through the Holy Spirit, how could you? Number two, it's pervasive. There's no area that it doesn't touch. Notice it says you'll be left with what? Notice it says in verse uh, 12, the corner of a couch. You'll have a little part of a cushion in your pillowcase, a part of a bed. Notice it's going to hit your summer house and your winter house. But they're hundreds of miles apart from each other, God. One's in the hill country, the other's on the beach. God says, I'll dress both of them. It's pervasive. There's nothing that God can't touch. Nothing in our lives is off limits to God. All of this punishment, all of this talk of tribulation has a purpose. It has a purpose. These aren't idle threats. God isn't talking like a big shot. He means business. And what is the purpose of all of this? It is found in verse 7. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Amos says, listen, all of this is going to happen. But God's given you a chance. He has sent me. And I've spoken the word so that you will turn and you'll start following him. That you'll obey him. None of this has to happen, Israel. If you would just follow God. If you'd repent of your ways and go the direction that he's calling you to. Stop worshiping the gods of the lands around you and start worshiping the most high, only God, who deserves our praise. Hard words again. So what are we going to do with this? Amos 3 gives us three takeaways as Christ followers in the 21st century. Number one, fear God through his warnings or face to face. You decide. 
God is warning. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? Have you feared God because you've heard the roar of the lion? Well, maybe you say, you know what? The roar doesn't sound that great. It's not that big. I have nothing to fear. And you go on with your life, and that's, God gives you that ability. And some of you this morning, instead of fearing the, the word of the Lord through the prophets and through the writing of Scripture, are going about your life saying, you know what? I'll take God on face to face. But I want you to be reminded of what God says will happen on that day. Write this passage down, Revelation 6.16, starting, I'm sorry, 6.15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of God who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who can stand? We've got a choice, my friends. We either fear God today while there is still the ability to receive mercy from God or we will stand before God on the judgment day and we'll take him on face to face. And the Apostle Paul says, and he knows better than anybody, that on that day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, but I will be too late. So either fear God today or fear him one day face to face. That's the biggest question you have to ask yourself in this life. Number two, as a Christian, be active in your accountability. What that means is, because Christ has come and taken the wrath for you, because Christ has changed you, Because Christ has taken you from being a child of wrath to now a child of Almighty God, because he's done all that, how should we respond? That when we sin, we should call it out first. We should address it. We shouldn't have to wait for God to come and clean house. We should be keeping short lists with God that when we sin, we should confess our sin, knowing God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Do we need to wait for God's discipline? No. The Bible says discipline yourself. The Bible tells the church, confess your sins one to another. That way, I don't have to come and judge you. You've already judged yourself. When we approach next week the communion table, the Bible says you ought to examine yourself so that you don't take the, 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 the juice and the bread that symbolizes the body and blood of Jesus Christ in an unworthy manner because God says that when we do that, we, we risk the discipline of God, the judgment of God on our lives. So we need to be accountable for what we're doing. We need to hold ourselves to these things. And and when we hear these things, either from our own reading of Scripture or from someone preaching or teaching to us, it should cause us pause and say, God, I'm not right with you. And so I'm coming to you, humbly bringing my sins before you, knowing that when I humble myself, you are gracious. But when you come, And show me my sin is far more difficult. We need to be active in our own accountability. And finally, and I'll close with this, we need to let our gratitude 
lead us to godliness. Now, we're really, really careful with this, and this is why it's my last point. God doesn't want to scare you into a relationship with him. That is altogether not what I'm trying to get here. He starts with the idea, look at all I've done for you. Why wouldn't you fall in love with me? Why wouldn't you worship me? Why wouldn't you turn away from sin and temptation in light of all that I've done for you? How can you not stay true to me? You see, God shows us all those things and reminds us of all that he's done for us so that we will stop and say, what a God. What a mighty God we serve. What a gracious God we serve. What a loving God we serve. And we just keep going and going and going, counting the blessings as the song says, naming them one by one. Count the many blessings. See what God has done. When we begin to do that, I will tell you, our temptations will pass away. When we do that, our heart will be filled with joy. I have a God who loves me. I have a God who saves me. I have a God who cares about me. And so when I'm concerned and when I'm struggling, I've got a God I can run to. Because God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whosoever will believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Our gratitude should lead us to godliness. Are you so filled with gratitude that the things of this world grow strangely dim, as the songwriter says, in light of God's glory and grace? God wants us to see what he has done and respond in kind. And when we do, we can have confidence that that accountability we need will happen and God's discipline will be light. But never forget, my friends, when we don't, God reserves the right and reminds us again and again and again that God will come because he loves us and discipline us to maturity and holiness.